I'm Adam Seafew. And I'm Scott Stern. And we're here with another episode of S2D, the Symptom to Diagnosis podcast. This podcast teaches evidence-based strategies for diagnosing common medical symptoms. We begin each episode with a case, unknown to one of us. We then discuss five high-yield features that help to accurately diagnose the cause of the symptom at hand. We then return to our case before finishing up with a discussion of fingerprints, common misconceptions, pet peeves, and other random pearls of knowledge. The cases that we discuss are drawn from our clinical experience, but because protecting patient privacy is part of our oath, we never discuss actual patients. What are we talking about today, Scott? Today, we are talking about FUO, otherwise known as fever of unknown origin. Interesting. Interesting. Unfortunately, you're the expert, and so I have to listen to a case of fever of unknown origin, which I imagine is going to be challenging, but I'm here for you. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, good. This will be fun. I'm going to torture you. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah, I am. <laughs> okay. Our patient is a 92-year-old man. <laughs> How do you like that? Great. Who presented with the chief complaint of fevers for the last five weeks, referred from an outside hospital. That, he says his highest temperature has only been 100.8. Um, he had a day or two of diarrhea when it started, but that resolved and had some headaches, no abdominal pain, no cough, no urinary symptoms, and uh, that was it for his chief complaint. Okay. Would you like to know his past medical history? <laughs> yeah. I don't have much to go on, so I need something. All right. So he had bladder cancer years ago, and he had a resection, and then he had a perioperative installation of chemotherapy into his bladder. Um, that was 10 years ago, no known recurrence. Okay. He had a history of previously being noted to have diverticulosis with never having had diverticulitis or a bleed and a history of hypertension. Um, His social history, he quit smoking about 20 years ago. He drinks a glass of wine every day or so and no recent travel. Um, Would you like his outside labs? Because I had those when I first saw him. Sure. So he's been hospitalized? No. No, no, no. He's just been seeing a doctor on the outside and he's transferred to you. And they couldn't get to the bottom of it, so um, he came here. Okay. So um, his outside labs, he's had several. So his white count has been anywhere from 22.9,000 to 17.6,000. thousand. Okay. With a little bit of a left shift. Okay. His hemoglobin is 31 and a half. Okay. His platelet count was 276,000, went as high as 473,000. Okay. Actually got bone marrow biopsy, Good. Uh, which was uh, showed only reactive changes. I mean, he had a, a, a chest X-ray that was unremarkable, a COVID test that was unremarkable, a, a comprehensive metabolic panel that was normal except for creatinine that was 1.8 at its maximum. I think actually 2.0 at its maximum, and he'd been maybe 1.5 years before, so it wasn't a dramatic change. Uh, urinalysis was negative. And his CRP has gone from, let's see, 16 and then uh, 19. Okay. And does he take any meds for all of his? Yeah. So he takes, you know, amlodipine and losartan uh, okay. and he's on simvastatin for his cholesterol because we know that works well in 92-year-olds. <laughs> and I'm going to assume that that's been for a while, those guys. Nothing new. Right. Exactly. Um, and then an exam when you first saw him? So he was a febrile when I saw him, okay. you know, uh, didn't look toxic or anything. Um, his HNT exam was unremarkable. I looked at his teeth. There wasn't, you know, any, yeah, any yeah. clear infection. His thyroid felt normal. Um, his lungs were clear. His cardiac exam, you know, regular normal sinus rhythm, no murmurs, no gallops. My abdomen was completely soft, non-tender, no masses. Uh, prostate exam was enlarged, but soft, no induration, no nodules, and, and not tender. Okay. 
Okay. Well, that's tough. Um, so, you know, hearing it, the first thing that I always do is say, you know, is this really, you know, a fever of unknown origin? So I think about, has this gone on for a long time? It sounds like this has gone on for a long time. And then I often, because I so try not to, you know, get too excited about things until I'm convinced, um, I actually try to sort of make sure that people really have an FUO. And this guy, you know, you're seeing him. He's not febrile when you see him. He's got like a really unimpressive CRP. I think I'd approach this where I'd sort of say, look, I'm going to do a couple of things. I'm going to trust that this is actually real. I'm going to do a couple of things now. But I probably wouldn't go crazy at the beginning because I'd like to sort of, under my control, see if this is real. So, you know, I'd send him home with a thermometer and tell him, you know, hey, you're taking your temperature four times a day and you're going to report that to me in a week so I see what's happening. I think with what you've told me, um, a couple of things that come up, you know, so this guy's had uh, diverticulosis in the past, as probably all 93-year-olds have. Um, I expect you went real deep into his left lower quadrant. Uh, you know, diverticulitis is something that can certainly hang out. I'd be kind of maybe a little more, well, certainly more careful than usual on his physical exam. I usually do a rectal exam in men, you know, make sure there's no prostatitis there. I kind of whack on people's sinuses, though I recognize that that's not terribly specific. See if there's a sinusitis uh, hiding there. I think in this guy before sending him home, you know, I would do blood cultures. I might do a C. diff since it sounded like there was some uh, diarrhea at the beginning of all this. And then, you know, I wouldn't make a whole lot, I guess, of the white count now just because it's been there and he's had a bone marrow biopsy. I sort of don't think the marrow is going to be the answer here. I think that's going to be reactive and the platelets go along with that. Um, so I think I'd say monitor your temperature for a week. I'm going to send off those things to begin with and let's just kind of watch you. Okay. Would you like more information now, or would you rather us go into the pivotal points for this? Why don't we wait, and then we'll talk a little bit more. All right. Sound okay? Sounds okay. Um, so let's leave the case, and why don't you give us the five key points? Five key points. So first, we should start with definition. Uh, the definition of an FUO is actually pretty uh, capricious. It's thought to be a temperature of greater than 38.3 on several occasions over two to three weeks, despite intensive investigations. Now, here's the problem. Nobody agrees on what the intensive investigations are, nor does anyone agree on the two to three weeks. So FUO is an ill-defined entity that basically means someone's having a fever that is somewhat prolonged, at least more than a week or two, because that gets rid of a lot of the viral syndromes that often, um, you know, we don't diagnose and we don't really care about. I have something to say, but I'm going to save it because it's pretty much my only pet peeve here. And I don't want to, you know, lose something early. Okay. Well, then point two is we can organize the differential diagnosis of FUO into three large buckets, if you will. By far and away, the most common is infectious. Uh, and then there's malignancies and rheumatologic diseases. And the frequency of each of those varies depending on what cohorts being looked at, frankly. And my understanding, and it's kind of cool as you read about this, that not only has the definition changed over time, right? Because our diagnostic tests have gotten more 
um, specific. You know, FUO lasts less long these days because we can figure it out faster. And also the breakdown or let's say the size of your three buckets change, right? Where actually infectious disease has shrunk in retrospect to malignancy and um, rheumatologic disease. No, that's right. And I saw the same things. Great. Uh, point three. So obviously what you tried to do initially, which is you really need to look for clinical clues. The differential diagnosis is just enormous. And if you're starting blind, it's pretty tough. So you do need a really thorough history, including a comprehensive review of systems and a really detailed physical exam that, as you mentioned, would include a rectal exam in men and a pelvic exam in women. And then you follow up on those clues. It, it's unlikely to give you the diagnosis, but might tell you where to look next. So obviously a cough or dyspnea would point to looking at the lungs in more detail with imaging. Uh, diarrhea can point to a GI infection. Abdominal pain might point you to looking at the CT scan of the abdomen. Um, urinary symptoms obviously would point to that area. Headaches could suggest something like temporal arteritis, not an uncommon cause, or an encephalitis, meningitis. Um, one thing we've seen a couple times in the hospital is patients who have epidural abscess who present with not much pain, but weakness in the legs. So weakness should really get your attention if they have it. Uh, joint pain could suggest lymph, uh, rheumatic disease. And you do want a careful lymph node exam because lymphomas uh, can do this. You want to check for splenomegaly. So I can't emphasize enough, really, just the detail of the physical yeah. exam. I think fever of unknown origin you know, maybe with overlapping of, of fever neutropenia is about the only time in medicine where you're actually going to do your head to toe physical that you learned in physical diagnosis or clinical skills or whatever it was called where you trained, right? Because it's the one time that you're like, I don't know, I'm just going to look for everything. And what's interesting with FUO is that, you know, if you find something, you know, so if you listen really carefully in a quiet room and actually do a full lung exam and you're like, huh, I actually hear some, you know, anterior rails. It's probably not a chest x-ray, which is going to be the answer because that's probably already been done, right? So you're actually probably following up physical exam abnormalities with maybe more invasive tests than you would normally. Right. Or more detailed tests, not necessarily invasive. Sure. Is what you mean. How about, how, how about we settle on more expensive tests? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I think the other symptom that does that is weight, unintentional weight loss. Because yeah. again, it's the differential is just enormous and you need a clue. Yeah. You know, unintentional weight loss. So you find so much out in the history for unintentional weight loss, right? Although there's so many people you don't diagnose at all. I know. All right. All I think right. we've talked about that already. I think we have, actually. <laughs> Maybe with my dementia, I don't remember it. Okay, so the third point is then, what do you do when your history and your physical aren't pointing to something specific? And there's a baseline set of labs I think most people would do, although I don't think there's actual you know, confirmation of this. Um, you would do a CBC and a comprehensive metabolic panel. These days, you're going to do a COVID test, um, an HIV test, of course, a monospot's recommended um, an ANA as a, a screen, I guess, for lupus, as serum protein electrophoresis for multiple myeloma, um, a PPD or a quantiferon, depending on where some whether or not someone's had BCG. Just to refresh our audience, the trouble with BCG, which is a vaccine that's given in many parts of the world to prevent TB, is that in many patients, it cross-reacts with the PPD. So patients who've had a BCG should actually get a quantiferon test, which doesn't cross over with a BCG instead of a PPD. So I think I got all my abbreviations correct on that long diatribe. 
Um, UA and a chest X-ray, blood cultures, like you said, and some authors also recommend an echocardiography to look for signs of endocarditis. But just just to disrespect your age a little bit, I think we've like just given up on the PPD, right? We use quantiferon for everything now. Here you're screening people for work, which you probably shouldn't be doing anyway. We just do quantiferon. You know, we don't do PPD anymore. It's certainly simpler. You don't have to yeah. inject it. People don't have to come back. I, I don't disagree. It is... I, Yes, fair enough. Do you remember getting the tine test yes, when you were a kid? Yes, I do. Little four little pokes yeah. and that little white thing. Yeah, I do remember that. My pediatrician used to draw a heart around it. Oh, very nice. So you could see it again later. Yes, that's right. Do you remember the oral polio vaccine? I do remember that. There we go. And the smallpox vaccine. Me too. All right. Now that we've <laughs> told everyone how old we are, let's, should we carry on? Yes, please. Okay. So the fourth key point is when everything else has been negative, it is appropriate to do a CT scan of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis. The reason is a lot high. You've already mentioned that anterior rowels might suggest, you know, an upper lobe infiltrate. Those are not well seen on chest X-ray. Um, similarly, a lot of infections and tumors in the abdomen can really hide um, and not be very impressive on physical exam. You know, a lot of patients are overweight, and so it's hard to feel. And also, retroperitoneal findings are not going to be palpable on physical examination. And I've seen, you know, renal cell carcinomas present with FUOs and abscesses present as FUOs and pheochromocytomas present as FUOs. So it's really appropriate to go ahead and do that. One thing I read that was really interesting was some authorities have recommended getting a PET CT instead of a PAN CT in this patient population. I have to say, I've never done that. The idea is that tumors and infections are often uh fluoroxy glucose avid because of their high metabolic rate and that those tests, the PET CT is more sensitive than a regular CT in this situation. Have you ever done that? I've done it as a second line, sort of post CT, not found anything. And did it help? It did help actually really? in this in this single case. What was it? Um, it was actually a lung cancer. Really? Yeah. Small enough, just not seen on the original CT. Well, now I should do it on everyone because you know the way I am. <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah, I, sh I just shouldn't have said anything. Um, <laughs> to highlight one thing that I just missed, um, and it's sort of easy, but it's just interesting to sort of reflect on, you know, what COVID has changed, um, that I have had one person in the last two years who had, and these were not like great diagnoses because like everybody has COVID and of course you're going to check it. Um, but someone who really presented just with a week of fever, nothing else, and I'm like, oh, we should do a COVID test. COVID test was positive. You know, no URI symptoms, no influenza-like symptoms, just a fever. Um, and another woman who really just presented with fatigue and it was two weeks of a horrible fatigue. There was no kind of, you know, uh, preliminary URI symptoms, nothing her COVID test was positive. We sort of waited it out and it got better. It's interesting. Well, you know, we do know that uncommon presentations of common diseases are common. And now we have something that's affecting millions of people. So <laughs> right. we can almost expect for sure we're going to get weird presentations. Good point. Okay. Well, why don't you bring us home with number five? So the fifth key point we should talk about together, which is there are a variety of special populations where you're going to say, oh, this person has FUO and X. Mm. And because of X... We're going to think about other things. So I'll start with diabetics. Okay. You know, diabetics, one of the places infections love to hide in patients who have diabetes is uh, foot ulcers and hmm. osteomyelitis. So the data on this suggests that uh, foot ulcers can lead to osteomyelitis in patients with diabetes without really much of a, a remarkable physical exam. It can look like a fairly benign ulcer and yet be right into the bone. So I would recommend that if you have a patient with diabetes, 
who has an FUO and a foot ulcer that you proceed to MRI, even if it's an unimpressive physical exam. I'm also going to say really examine the foot. I've seen two people who I was brought in, they had foot pain and the report was there's nothing really there on the foot. And when I actually like really squeezed, pus shot out. And so like, you got to get in there and you got to make sure. Obviously that would have been turned up on the MRI, but you know, you can get some clues. Another, this should go under clinical pearls, but I got to tell you, smell can help you in this situation because diabetic foot ulcers and anaerobic ulcers often have a really nasty smell. So shockingly enough, if you walk in a room and it really smells bad and you're kind of repulsed, you really want to look at the legs and the feet carefully because you might that might be your clue that you're looking for. Yes. Do you have any special populations you think about? Um, maybe I'll go with the you know most obvious one is HIV, right? Um, and HIV, I feel it's it turns, and this is obviously late stage HIV, very immunosuppressed. Um, this is often not that you have no idea where to look, but you have multiple places to look, and it's just figuring out, you know, what the hell is causing the symptoms. Um, MAI is certainly a possibility. Uh, you need to culture for that. Sometimes a bone marrow biopsy for that. Cryptococcus, uh, CMV, lymphomas in HIV can be an issue. That's often something that you're going to turn up just on imaging. And that's often difficult because there can be just underlying HIV-associated lymphadenopathy, and it's distinguishing that from the lymphoma. Um, Endemic mycoses, right? Things that don't cause symptoms in most people, but can cause symptoms and real illness in HIV. So a huge number of things that you may turn up in the workup in HIV. Yeah, that, that's definitely true. We used to see that a lot. Oh, all the time. All Fortunately, the time. less so now. Another population I would talk about are people who've been hospitalized with various conditions. So if patients have an indwelling catheter and they have an FUO, you better just assume it's infected regardless of what the site looks like and pull it and culture it. Neutropenic patients are a completely different um, kettle of fish, as are any immunocompromised patients. And it would behoove anybody who's taking care of a patient who's immunocompromised with FUOs to look up what that particular drugs that they're on puts them at risk for. You know, in neutropenia, for instance, we know we need to worry about staph, pseudomonas, and if the fevers persist, fungal infections. But transplant recipients and many other immunocompromised patients have different sorts of infections, and that should be looked up at the time. Great. And I guess, you know, you mentioned that thing about hospitalized patients. Um, It's that patient who develops fever in the hospital that doesn't go away or so difficult. C. diff is is an obvious one. And then all of the medication-related fevers. And it really takes some courage where you're like, you know, we've worked up everything. This person's on three antibiotics. Nothing's changed. We just need to stop everything in a stable person where then you say, look, they're in the hospital. If they go bad, we're going to know immediately. But on occasion, all of a sudden, everything gets better. And you never really know which of the three antibiotics was causing the fever, but the person's better. And so it doesn't really matter. Right. I mean, that's really a good point. And the tough part about that is the fevers are often from antibiotics. And so it takes a certain amount of chutzpah to say, fine, they're still in fevers. I'm going to back off. Right. It's not the intuitive sort of, you know, knee-jerk response. When you do that, you end up just moving into the patient's room so you can observe them 24 hours a day, don't you? Taking clonopin four or five times a day, I think. (laughs) Um, Another group to think about are elderly folks. You know, elderly patients, uh, some of the rheumatologic conditions are particularly common, such as polymyalgia, rheumatica, and temporal arteritis. And so a SED rate and a CRP, if they're high could lead you to think about those, maybe think about temporal artery biopsy and so on. Good. And then probably the last thing is um, 
people with travel history, whether it's, you know, recent travel just on vacation or immigrants who've spent, you know, decades in other places. This just leads you to look stuff up. You know, it's just to say, okay, you know, what are the endemic infections uh, in those regions? What is something that someone could have picked up and brought home? Or is there a sort of, you know, endemic, I don't know, fungal infection, parasitic infection that that person might be showing signs of now, often late in life, you know, when the immune system is waning. Right. TB being huge. All right. So you wanted to send him home and see how he's doing. <laughs> I did. Wait, but wait, I, I asked for some stuff, All right? What did you I, want? I, I asked for blood cultures. I asked for it to see diff. I asked you to get a glove and do a rectal exam. Um, I think that was about all I asked for. So I had done a rectal exam and okay. it was negative. Okay, good. The blood cultures were no growth and the C. diff was negative. Okay. Okay. And so how'd the guy do? Uh, well, not so well. Um, he continued to not feel well. I'd gotten, you're going to be surprised at this. I'd gotten a few more labs. Let me see if these few more labs might alter okay. your thinking. So I thought, well, he's elderly. His temperature is low grade. Let's get some labs. His repeat um, Y count was 18,000, uh, 80% neutrophils. The hemoglobin was still 9.6. Um, his SED rate was 18. His CRP was 186 our upper limit of normal being five. Um, his CMP showed his creatinine was maybe up a smidgen, 2.3. His albumin was 3.2. And his LFTs were normal. So, thoughts? Urine on this visit or no? Negative. Okay. So now I'm actually more concerned. Um, you know, the white count still doesn't do a whole lot for me. You know, I do think he's chronically inflamed, right, with this anemia and these elevated platelets. Uh, that CRP through the roof is making me think, wow, you know, there really is something here. And the only thing, you know, that there's any reason to focus on, I guess, is this creatinine. And often, you know, a 93-year-old guy, you know, not surprising that his creatinine's but it does sound to be up from his baseline. It seems to be rising. And so if there was a place that something might be hiding, maybe it's the kidneys. And so I'm left with, ah, oh, geez, you know, what's the next test here, right? There's nothing in the urine. And so I think maybe I'm at the point where I need to scan this person. And, you know, the risks are kind of there with giving him contrast. So I almost might start with a non-contrast abdominal pelvic CT, and I would tell the guy that, look, look, this might very well be negative, and we might have to take a larger risk with a contrast exam like a week later. But in someone in their 90s, you're not really that worried about radiation exposure, right? You're not going to have consequences of this in 20 years. So what happened next? So I did, there are calculators, as you know, for yeah. AKI, yeah. and I looked over the calculations and the risk of contrast nephropathy was somewhere between 10 and 20%, but the risk of contrast nephropathy to the point of causing dialysis yeah. was only in the very small percentage yeah. ranges. So I, I held my breath and did a CT with contrast, although I think your proposal would have been reasonable, and that showed massive diverticulitis. Hmm. Um, despite his unremarkable physical exam, he had a phlegmon that that you and I could read on an abdominal CT that went from the pelvis up to the spleen. Um, and from there, it went poorly. I'll remind you that I did comment on that. Yes. And I suggested that maybe you do a good abdominal exam, which you seem I to have not done. I did a good abdominal exam. <laughs> and, uh, you know, elderly patients are tricky. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, and was, was he heavy? Was he a no. different... Uh, well, I mean, he was, you know, by our standards today, I wouldn't say, you know, 
probably 200, 220 pounds. Yeah, not cachectic. Not cachectic. <laughs> Interesting. So obviously antibiotics, did he need surgery? Well, you know, we did put him on antibiotics. We were trying to avoid surgery because of his age and sure. his creatinine and whatnot. And then he became septic Ugh. on antibiotics Ugh. and went to surgery and didn't survive. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Um, you wonder if the diagnosis, you know, had been made earlier, right? Um, oh, it's a tough case. Okay, let's move on to um, our famous... Right. Fingerprints. Common misconceptions, pet peeves, and other random pearls of knowledge. Um, You want to start us off with fingerprints? Um, I don't have any fingerprints. Yeah. And and in fact, obviously, there are no fingerprints, right? Because if there were fingerprints, it wouldn't be a fever of unknown origin because you'd make the diagnosis. Um, I kind of like the fact, um, and maybe this goes a little bit from fingerprints or the fact that there isn't. And you mentioned this a little bit to begin with about, you know, what we think about when we think about FUO. It, It needs to be persistent, right? And the fact that it needs to be persistent does a couple of things. It limits the differential diagnosis, right? Because when we think about things, everything, everything, everything that should go away quickly is off the differential diagnosis, right? And it also then assures that an evaluation is warranted because even if there's something that, well, yeah, wow, we got to find that. If it's gone away, you know, who cares? Right. We don't worry about right, it anymore. Totally. It also really limits the number of patients who need to be evaluated. So, you know, we talk about this like, oh, FUO, of course, it's something we should talk about on the podcast. But, you know, it's really, really rare. I know. I was thinking about that. I think I've probably only evaluated, it's probably every couple of years between an FUO, I think, maybe even that I've seen, maybe even every five. What would you say? I would say the same thing. I think it's more common that, like, I'm referred an FUO. And it doesn't actually turn out to be anything because once you actually just like step back, pay attention, it's like, this isn't the problem. Right, right. Um, Okay, common misconceptions? So it's probably worth talking about temperature a little bit. So what's normal? You know, the really fascinating thing is the idea that 98.6 was established. Are you ready for this? 1868, um, at a time when there were probably more occult chronic infections and inflammatory conditions going on. So it was a survey of a zillion folks and the average temperature is 98.6, probably a more Normal temperature for the average person these days is 97.5. And it may be that it should even be lower than that in the elderly. The elderly don't mount responses as well. I'll come back to that in a little bit. Yeah, it's so cool. And and like the thinking is that, you know, those measurements probably included people with chronic infections, right? And also that we're just generally less inflamed, right? Um, it's wild. And I've seen I've seen sort of like, you know, how much our temperature is declining per decade. It's like, it's wild. Well, I, I wonder if part of that is our food sources. You know, we don't have as much chronic intestinal yeah. inflammation yeah. because we don't have as much chronic exposure yeah. to infectious agents in our gut. Yeah, yeah. My um, common misconception, this is a little bit of a a stretch, but that algorithms are helpful in the diagnosis of FUO, okay? I do this only slightly to bother you, Scott, with because you've got, (laughs) don't you have an algorithm like tattooed on your shoulder blade? Um, I think I have many of them on my back. It may be a map. I should just do a map of all the algorithms on my back. um, There are good algorithms, and but I would sort of point out maybe the most recent reference, which a lot of people have read, is there was a terrific, terrific uh, review of Fever of Unknown Origin, actually in the February 2022 
New England Journal. And there are algorithms there, but the algorithms are so sort of generic um, because it's basically think about the patient, work up the individual patient you have, and then if you get nowhere, do really broad imaging, right? And so FUO, in a way, is not something that we do algorithmic care for. Right. That Hence, the, do the careful history and physical and look for clues, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> pet peeves? Should I start? Why don't you start? So my pet peeve is actually not being alarmed by low-grade fevers in the elderly. It turns out that elderly patients have trouble mounting high temperatures. And there was one study uh, that documented that 20 to 30% of elderly patients who had serious infections actually had either no fever or a very blunted response. And they another study found that in patients over 80 who had a fever of 101, virtually all of them had a serious infection. So unlike children and young adults who mount fevers easily, the elderly really don't. And uh, you need to be alarmed when they come. You know, you get an elderly patient who's 102. Boy, you almost should put them in the hospital unless yeah. you know what's causing it. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, my pet peeve is a bit of a stretch. I'm, I'm remarkably, how about this, chill about fever of unknown origins. And I think it's because what usually drives me crazy is excessive evaluations. Um, and FUO, you know, if there's been a fever and it's been around for a while, you don't know what's causing it. It kind of deserves an excessive evaluation. So I'm okay with this. But I, I did work to kind of manufacture a peeve um, just for the good of the podcast. And something that does bug me is really the name, right? We never discuss, ooh, it's a headache of unknown origins origin or chest pain of unknown origin. So really, this should just be called prolonged fever, right? And there is a list of diseases that cause prolonged fever. Um, and there are evaluations for those cause of prolonged fever. And if you said, you say, huh, I've got someone with a prolonged fever. You know, this is a differential of prolonged fever. I got to figure out how I'm going to go after it in this individual patient. So when we rule the world, what we should do is change the name of a couple of diseases. I'll let you change this one if you let me change community-acquired pneumonia. Okay. Because that captures all the different infections and people stop thinking. It makes me right. crazy. Right. Deal? If we could call it C-fuse prolonged fever. fever. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Let's go on to clinical pearls. Okay. You start. All right. Um, I just want to say that this case illustrates the old adage that uncommon presentations of common diseases is a much more frequent phenomenon than rare diseases or typical presentations of uncommon diseases. He had a common disease and he presented atypically. Now we know elderly and children often don't present typically, but it's just true and it's just interesting. Great. And then I guess my pearl is... Um Think about FUO and travelers, right? I sort of mentioned this before. In a way, you should be excited if you have someone who's recently traveled who has a fever and you don't know what it's from, because you know it may not be something exotic, but at least it's going to take some work. Our infectious disease doctors are, you know, spectacular um, with this. The things that lead the list are certain, certainly malaria, enteric fever that we don't see a whole lot, leptospirosis, and a really, really, really rare cause. Um, which I always comment on is airport malaria, that I think there's been like 70 some cases, you know, in the literature. So it's really rare. But it's people who have not been someplace interesting where they may have gotten malaria, but they've gone through airports that have travelers from interesting places. And I don't know, some mosquito got on the airplane and, and bit them and they end up with malaria. It's about the worst luck in the world. 
but it's pretty interesting as a doctor. That must be the most nerdy comment in the entire podcast. I think <laughs> that wins. All right, I have a clinical pearl, yep. and that has to do with shaking chills. So yep. patients often say that they're chilled, and what you have to distinguish is whether they just felt chilly and cold or whether they were physically shaking. It turns out that there is a strong correlation between physically shaking chills and bacteremia. Now, there's no doubt influenza can do it and some of the viruses can do it, but you should absolutely ask patients when they feel chilled, were they physically shaking? If I was in the room with you, would I have seen you shaking or were you chattering? And if so, be worried. Yeah, good. Um, I got one more I'll throw in just because as two internists, we should say this. F-U-O, blame the surgeon. <laughs> um, and what I mean is if you have a patient you know, with a prolonged fever who recently had surgery, just think, ah, it's got to be the wound, right? People are far enough out that they're not having fevers from atelectasis. They're not having, you know, urinary tract infections. They're not having urine symptoms, you know, and it may be something very mild. It might be, you know, a small collection in the incision, but that's clearly the place to go first um, if you're looking for something. You know, they did say in that New England Journal article that atelectasis is actually not a cause of fever. It's ah, a common misconception. Is that right? Yeah. Is that interesting? So that wind, wound, water. Right. They mentioned that a lot of patients postoperatively have inflammatory fevers yeah. from the surgery, but if it persists, right. It right on is to look at look carefully at the wound in sure. the area. Sure. Good. Well, we hope you found this episode of S2D, the Symptom Diagnosis Podcast, useful and a bit enjoyable. As a reminder, our textbook, Symptom Diagnosis and Evidence-Based Guide, takes a much deeper dive into how to think about and reason through the diagnosis of medical presentations. Though there's not a chapter on FUO. This time. This time. <laughs> We're thinking of that for edition five? I guess we could. We could. Um, the book is available in print through all the usual places on your mobile device and also available and fully searchable via the Access Medicine website available worldwide from McGraw-Hill. The music for the S2D podcast is courtesy of Dr. Malin Martinez. Mm-hmm.